This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. I want you to think with me here for a minute about how technology has changed the way we see ourselves in the world. Okay, this is the, the picture I need you to carry with you as we work through this um, substantive message today. Think about how technology has impacted the way we see ourselves in the world today. Uh, you, I don't know how far back you'd have to go, but eventually you're going to get to a place where farming technology was very different than what it is today. You know, I don't know if you've driven through America's heartland recently, but every once in a while I see these massive farm fields and the this, this sprinkler systems on tires. I assume they move, uh, and I assume that the farmer can put water through that when, whenever he or she wants. Uh, it wasn't always that way. You know that, right? It wasn't always that. In fact, we have some family friends of ours who live in the Appleton area who um, have run for generations a family farm. It's a small family farm. It's not a backyard garden. still hundreds of acres. Um, but they, uh, they have no irrigation in their farm. They're completely dependent on how the weather goes for the success of their crops. Things have changed, though, in many places, haven't they? You can water your crops whenever you want. How about soil science? Has that developed over the years? How about, um, a little more controversially, genetics? Crop genetics? I don't think they were doing that in the 4th century. <laughs> what has this done? Technology shifts the balance of power from nature to us. It shifts the balance of power from nature to us. It used to be the farmer was completely dependent on forces and authorities outside him or herself. Completely dependent. Had to submit to it. Now, well, we've wrangled some of that into submission, haven't we? We call the shots. Uh, Think about advances in biomedical technology. Diseases that were once lethal. Hmm? We've got medicines for those and really some really cheap medicines for those now. Polio has been eradicated. We have tamed the wild world of pathogens. So we think. (laughs) Technology sends a message to us. You have the power. Think about another one. Think about the authority geography once imposed on people. Imagine living, and some of you would love to go there, in a countryside Italian village in the 1300s. Most of your life was spent in that village. Your career path was probably established for you by the nature of the family you were born into. Vacationing in the Caribbean was not happening. 
your sphere of existence was small and to a great degree predetermined. Today, with the advancement of technology, travel is fairly easy. You can get to anywhere. Somewhat affordable. There aren't many places you can't access. Fewer limitations are placed in your career path. Do you see how technology has shifted the balance of power from nature to us? Carl Truman, reflecting on this, says, We no longer think of ourselves as subject to the world's fixed nature or of it as having an objective authority or meaning. We are the ones with power. The transgender movement provides a clear example of this. If technological development has convinced us of the power we have, and the world around us is just stuff we use to make of whatever we desire, then that means I no longer have to submit to the external law of my biology. I can do with my body whatever I please. If I feel I'm a woman, I'm a woman, even though the external authority of my biology says differently. Authorities outside me can be disregarded. Why? The world's just stuff that we powerful human beings make use of to satisfy whatever desires we have. Now, the application of this isn't just for the transgender community because we Christians inhabit the same world. We inhabit this world where technology shifts the balance of power from nature to us. And to a degree, we're the same as everybody else. The world is just stuff that we make use of to satisfy whatever desires we have. And what gets lost in all this is a key biblical ethic that God put in place for our flourishing and his glory. And the ethic is the goodness of authority and the virtue of submission. Now, it is remarkable how dirty those two words have become. Authority and submission are cuss words to some people today. But if we understand them appropriately, we'll see it's a dance. It's a dance. And when executed properly, it's beautiful. In this series, Deception, we're identifying traps, snares the devil puts on our path from new birth to glorification in heaven. And one of those snares or traps the devil would like us to fall into could be filed under the crafty category of freedom. Be free. But under this take on it, if you peel back the veneer, it sounds different. It sounds like No one can tell me what to do. I'm accountable to no one. Whatever I want, I pursue. Whatever I feel like doing, I do. And we have to admit, Christian, we breathe this exhaust too. So let's regain our bearings. Let's think about authority and submission. Very quickly, I want to walk you through the seven clear instances of relational authority and submission in the Scriptures. I'm going to quickly show you these. And then I want to flesh out some of the applications and implications of it. 
Seven instances of relational authority and submission. First, Christians are to submit themselves to God. James chapter 4, verse 7. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Doesn't get any clearer than that. Okay, so maybe I am accountable to someone. Maybe I can't do whatever I feel like doing. Maybe there is someone in authority over me. Maybe I should be interested in his opinion of things. Second, wives are to submit to their own husbands. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 24. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Colossians 3, verse 18. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Titus chapter 3. Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. First Timothy chapter 3, likewise, wives be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands. Third, Christians are to submit to those over them in Christian leadership. First Corinthians chapter 16, now I urge you, brothers, you know that, that, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these, and to every fellow worker and laborer. First Peter chapter 5, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Hebrews 13, 17, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Employees are to submit to their employers. Titus chapter 2, bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. 1 Peter chapter 2, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust, for this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Children are to submit to their parents. Jesus exemplifies this. Luke chapter 2, and he went down with them. This is when he was a boy with his parents. He went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. I bet she did. Kids, it's Mother's Day. You've got one job to do today. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. First Timothy 3, verse 4, talking about the qualifications of an elder. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. Next, Christians are to submit to one another in the church. Ephesians chapter 5, therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. But be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And the seventh one, Christians are to submit to governing authorities. Romans chapter 13, verse 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Titus chapter 3, verse 1. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. 
First Peter chapter two, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Take a look at the list. It's pretty expansive. And what's interesting about this is that everybody submits. Everybody. It's a common Christian response. The scriptures say a lot about authority and submission, don't they? And don't underestimate just how countercultural this is. You will not hear this taught anywhere but in a church that teaches the Bible. So what are the applications of this? Or what are implications of this? How do, we, how do we work this out? This is kind of the skeleton. Let me put some flesh around it. Okay? Let me put five bits of flesh around this, these relationships of authority and submission. Number one, authority and submission are in our divinely given DNA. They're in our divinely given DNA. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 talks about the Son, Jesus, submitting to the Father. The Son is subject to the Father. Jesus says so in John chapter 6, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus submits to the Father's will and goes where and when the Father says. One thinks of the Garden of Gethsemane, where in a tormented state, Jesus asks the cup to pass from him, but says to his Father, Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Similar passages talk about the Son's sending of the Spirit. The Spirit's role is under the authority of the Son for the purpose of glorifying the Son. So among the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, there are authority structures. And one could argue that all all human authority structures that God puts in place are meant to be a reflection of the Godhead. Appropriate relationships of authority and submission are part of our divinely given DNA. Now, it's important to note Father, Son, Holy Spirit are fully God. But that does not prevent differentiation and order within the Trinity. They are fully eternal, divine, and sovereign, but that doesn't require that they are identical or interchangeable in terms of roles and authority. And this differentiation also has no impact on their perfection. That's an important thing to remember. So, appropriate relationships of authority and submission are part of our divinely given DNA. Second, authority and submission does not devalue Authority and submission does not devalue. Claire Smith has pointed out that there is a fallacy that circulates within our culture today. It essentially says that in order for two people to be equal, they have to do the same thing. In order for two people to be equal, they have to do the same thing. The fallacy says that when there is differentiation or hierarchy, there is also inferiority. It says that when there is differentiation and hierarchy, there is superiority of dignity or worth. 
The way in which the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit work together exposes the fallaciousness of that idea. All three persons of the Godhead share the same divine being and nature. Yet, there is hierarchy and differentiation, which means you can have sameness and equality alongside hierarchy and authority. Let me get practical with this for a minute. We tend to assign value to roles and job titles. To elevate certain roles and job titles as though they possess more dignity and value than others. I don't want you to miss just how egregious this way of seeing life is. Underneath that, when you strip it away, is the same ethic that produces the atrocities of abortion and euthanasia. The most dangerous place in the world for a special needs person to live is in the womb. We have a nasty addiction to assigning value and worth based on what one does or is able to do. But the Bible never does that. It never ever, ever assigns value or worth based on a role or a job title. Now, as a Christian community, I think the onus is on us to lead the way here. And one of the simple things we can do is just stop gawking. Stop gawking at people who do certain things or hold certain positions. To parade one's role or title out in front of others derives from the impulse to self-righteousness. And the corollary of that is true as well. To recoil from the fact that God has assigned different roles to various people is often driven by the same impulse to self-righteousness. The voice says, I have to have this role or title to feel valuable, worthy, and important. I have to have this role to feel valuable, worthy, important. This notion that I create my value based on the position I hold or the role I have is the essence of self-righteousness. And it's an affront to God and runs diametrically opposed to the gospel. So let me be clear about something, um, my brothers and sisters in Christ. Your value comes from just two, two places. Your inherent worth and dignity comes from just two places. The first is that you're made in the image and likeness of God. You bear his resemblance. Just by being human, not by having some title or role, by being human, you have value because you're made in the image and likeness of God. And second, your value comes from the fact that you've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Your value, your worthiness, your importance is connected just to those two things. Not what you do, what you don't do, what title you hold or don't hold. Third, authority is divinely assigned, not humanly created. How do we know where all the authority structures are placed? Well, God's told us. We just walk through them. It might be an obvious point, but I thought it important to... to, to highlight this because we live in a culture where power has become a front and center value. 
and it's relentlessly pursued. So it's worth shining a light on this. God has assigned authority to himself. We submit to God. God has assigned authority to husbands. Wives submit to their own husbands. He's assigned authority to parents. Children submit to their own parents. He's assigned authority to church leaders. Members submit to elders, and so on, and so on, and so on. So power is a byproduct of inhabiting a divinely assigned role. It's not the goal one goes after directly. There is a command I cannot find in the Bible anywhere. Grasp for power. I have read this book time and again. I cannot find that anywhere. Grasp for power. Can't find it. I cannot find it. So unless you occupy a divinely assigned role where an authority is given to you, don't pursue authority where none is given to you. What happens when we ignore this? Anarchy. Church splits. Divorce. Family breakdown. Power is a byproduct of inhabiting a divinely assigned role. It's not the goal one goes after directly. Now, there's a second application to this. And it's noticed by emphasizing divinely in the statement. If God is the one who has infused authority into a particular role, there is an obvious next question one ought to ask. What is the obvious next question one ought to ask? If that's true, the obvious next question is this. God, if the authority you have vested in this role comes from you, then how do I exercise that authority the way you intended? Did you hear that? If we don't ask that question, what happens to the power exercised? It's corrupt. It's corrupt. If God is the one who has vested power into these roles, the obvious next question ought to be, God, if you're the one who's done that, then how do I exercise authority the way you intended? Fourth, Submission is not absolute. As a pastor, I have been involved in the lives of those who are in domestic abuse situations where the physical well-being of those in the home and in the instances I've been a part of those, it's mostly been women and children, were in jeopardy. You are not called to submit in such situations. I'm going to show you why from the text in a minute. You know what to do. Get help. Let somebody know. Get help. Let me show you from the text. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22. It's very short. Just listen. Wives, submit to your own husbands. As to the Lord... Those four words, I would guess, are words that we fly through as we're reading a text like this. But just a side note here, the internet has made us terrible readers. Okay? I don't want to pontificate too long on this, but the internet teaches you to skim the surface. 
when you're reading. Right? You got headlines that pop up, scan it, you know, and you're done, right? You get 10 done in two minutes. If you apply that to Bible reading, don't. <laughs> don't. Uh, think of the Bible as hard candy. Think of the Bible as hard candy. Nobody eats hard candy the way I eat a Snickers bar. Okay? Nobody eats hard candy the way I eat a Snickers bar. Snickers bar? By the way, what is up with the fun size thing? What's fun about that? Nobody. We're off the rails. I'm sorry. Um, it's hard candy. So how do, you eat, how do you eat hard candy? You don't really eat hard candy. You suck on it. You roll it around in your mouth, right? You work it over. That's how you read the Bible. It's very different than the way you read the internet. Okay. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. We fly through that. We don't even think about what that means. I think it's an incredibly important phrase. First, Notice a husband's leadership is to mirror the Lord's leadership. Paul puts husbands in parallel with the Lord. Here. Husbands. The the, the verse may be directly spoken to wives, but it's whispering to you, lead like Jesus. Lead like Jesus. Second, I think it means that if a husband's demands are in conflict with submission to Christ, Christ wins every time. Every time. Submission ought never prod us to follow someone into sin. So if the husband is attempting to coerce his wife into sexual immorality or lying or stealing or cheating, then for Christ's sake, she ought not follow him into it. And third, in domestic violence situations, I think submission can actually be a side door way of perpetuating the sin of mistreatment. Because in such situations, enduring violence in the name of submission enables sin and violates the as to the Lord phrase that Paul is talking about here. So for Christ's sake, it needs to stop. One way or another, it needs to stop. So submission is not absolute. Let me show you another place where it's not absolute. Romans chapter 13. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. Now, even here, submission to governing authorities is not absolute. Look at some of the phrases that Paul uses. He says rulers or governing authorities are not a terror to, quote, 
good conduct, end quote. I'll just pause there for a moment. So this is the Apostle Paul writing. He wrote one quarter of the New Testament. What do you think Paul has in mind when he uses the phrase good conduct? Like if, if Paul put the phrase good conduct at the top of a sheet of paper and then listed examples of it, what do you think he, not you, what he would put underneath it? Now I'm going to go way out on a limb here and say that Paul would use the scriptures to define good conduct. <laughs> it's low risk. If we're right about that, then governmental proclamations should be measured against what the scriptures teach. And if they are in conflict, the scriptures win every time. Paul then says, do what is good. Again, how would this New Testament define that? Do what is good. How would he define that? He says, governing authorities are a servant for your good. What would Paul say is for the believer's good? The government is a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Question. What type of behavior arouses the wrath of God? And is the way in which the government exercises authority in alignment with that? Stanley Porter, who's a Roman specialist, points out there are two prongs to Paul's argument on submission to governing authorities. The first prong is that believers are to willingly submit to the authorities on the assumption that they're just. Makes sense. If we're using Paul's terminology, what is good? Yeah, that would make sense. And the second, if governing authorities derive their authority from God, they must rule in a way that is consistent with God's justice. Again, it makes sense. He concludes the following. He says, the important implication is that unjust authorities are not due the obedience of which Paul speaks, but rather are outside these boundaries of necessary obedience. Rather than being a text which calls for submissive obedience, Romans 13, 1-7 is a text which only demands obedience to what is right, never to what is wrong. Right and wrong as defined by the scriptures, not as maybe you would like them to be. Nobody feels great about taxes. I'm not endorsing not paying those. Render to Caesar what is Caesar's, to God what is God's. So like we see in Ephesians 5, submission ought never prod us to follow someone or something into sin. Fifth, relationships of authority and submission contribute to human flourishing. That's the opposite of what you hear today. (laughs) The mantra pervasively shouted today, and we've got to admit that to some degree we absorb this. The mantra that's shouted ad nauseum today is, the good life is found once you cast off all restraints and satisfy your inner self-defined needs. Remember, the balance of power has shifted from nature to to us. External laws and accountabilities are hindrances to flourishing. 
That's the mantra today. Now, in reality, appropriate relationships, when this dance is done well, it contributes to our flourishing. And I want to think from God, from top down, from God to us. If authority structures exist within the Godhead, and we are made to image God, it's one of the implications of being made in the image and likeness of God, is you are made to image God to the world, to those around you. So, if authority structures exist within the Godhead, and we're made to image this God, then authority structures within human relationships are God-like. And God-likeness is the best path to human flourishing. God-likeness is the best path to human flourishing. Think about this. God is the only being who has ever known what it is like to be infinitely happy. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, only being in the history of the cosmos, who's ever known what it's like to be infinitely happy. The more we image him, the happier we'll be. The more we image God, the greater our flourishing, because no community of persons has ever flourished as much as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, I know this is not an easy message to hear, because you will never hear that Monday through Saturday, ever. It grates against our natural propensity for autonomy. So I want to finish by offering two encouragements very quickly. Two encouragements from Philippians 2. Paul is writing to a church that has some conflict going on. He mentions two women by name who have some interpersonal conflict that they're dealing with. And within this atmosphere, Paul pens one of the most powerful passages in Scripture today. Just listen. He says, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So Paul is saying, in order to to have this dance among yourselves going well and for it to be beautiful and to contribute to your flourishing and to the honor and glory of God, the necessary ingredient is having the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus and specifically the humility of Christ. Think about who he was, his perfection, his authority, 
all that he was owed. And he left it behind. He clothed himself in frail human flesh and became the lowest of the low. If anyone was entitled not to do that, it was Jesus. And Paul says, that needs to be your attitude. Two encouragements, quick. Number one, submission serves and saves. Submission serves and saves. Jesus, it says, laid aside his power and privilege to serve you. This is what your Savior's done for you. He laid it aside. Contemplate the degree of submission Jesus willingly embraced, all to make you his own. Ask him to help you follow his example. It's precisely because Jesus submitted to the Father that you have been adopted as one of his children. And second, submission leads to exaltation. Ultimately, Jesus' submission to God's plan led to his exaltation. One reason we struggle with submission is fear. Those who follow the pattern of Christ can find assurance that your submission ends with your exaltation. Let's pray. Lord, the reason we teach on this is because your word has said so much about it. As we connect the dots, as we put the pieces together, we realize that you've done that for our good. You desire for us to dance in communities that are flourishing. And you've shown us how to do it. God, you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are exhibit A. Where there is this mutual deference to one another. Lord, I pray that we would take on the family resemblance here. That we would be like you. Lord, I pray that you'd expose in our hearts and our minds where these attitudes have gone astray where instead of deferring, we have clung to our own autonomy. We want to call the shots. We want to be in control. We want to be in charge. Lord, break us of that. That is not the route to vitality. That's a route to brokenness. And Lord, as we try to live in this way, I pray that you would continue to show Jesus to us who being in the very nature of God, he did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, but he made himself nothing, taking the very form of a servant. He became obedient to his father. And that led to his own death and his humiliation. But it has purchased for us an eternity with you. Help us set our minds, our hearts, our affections on Jesus as we seek to follow his example. We ask these things to his glory. Amen.